it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Sandy Banks. <laughs> Sandy Banks is a reporter and columnist for the LA Times. Her career in journalism spans four decades, and her work has been honored by a broad range of journalism and civic organizations. Please give a warm welcome to Sandy Banks. And I would like to introduce our guest tonight. Um, we've had fascinating talks back in the green room, so I can't <laughs> wait to share it all with you. Um, Dr. Bobo is a, is a sociologist and the W.E.B. Du Bois Professor of Social Science at Harvard University and also the dean of the department. Um, his research focuses on the intersection of social inequality, politics, and race. He's the co-author of multiple books on racial attitudes and prejudice in America. He was the director of the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford. He's also a Guggenheim Fellow, and his research has received numerous grants and accolades, and he is currently working when he's not um, teaching and being the dean <laughs> on the Race, Crime, and Public Opinion Project. Um, he's also explored is issues in Los Angeles when it comes to housing and race. That's part of a larger project. And tonight we're going to talk about, um, about white supremacy and how that is affecting us in race relations and how it will affect us in race relations. And part of what makes um, Dr. Bobo so good at this and an expert is, is the quantitative work he's done in kind of measuring racial attitudes because we all have our feelings about things, but there is a body of research that shows how we feel, why we feel that way, what changes it. And um, so we're gonna talk about that and kind of build up to how we, how we know what is white supremacy and what it means and what its impact is likely to be. So tell us about how, um, when did the concern about racial feelings begin and how did we start tracking that? Uh, well, at one level, the, uh, thank you, Sandy, for, for that introduction. But at, at one level, the concern about group prejudice, intergroup feelings, and the like is really um, a very old one. And if one were to go back to, say, the early psychological, sociological scholarship on it, uh, it might have been regarded as a natural tendency for animosity between people of different races who had different capabilities, different temperaments, different skill sets, and different appropriate roles in life. But kind of serious empirical research, not rooted in uh, an explicit tie to kind of a, a racist project like slavery, uh, begins around the World War II era. And uh, in my own work, uh, a, a key project was actually one launched in 1942, was kind of the first major social scientific survey dedicated to examinations of racial attitudes. This survey was literally supported by something then called the Office of War Information, and the government was deeply concerned that racial tensions and divisions might undermine a unified war effort. They were so concerned about the issue, in fact, that the initial report on the survey was a classified document. I mean, they didn't want people to know how uh, divided by race we might well be, and certainly were <laughs> in the 1940s. And we were divided in, in such basic things as thinking that certain races should live together and not interact, and that they sh white and black kids shouldn't go to school together, and those kind of things. And it wasn't just in the South. It was widely spread 
around the country. No, in, in that era, sadly, there was a generally broad national consensus on the idea that we ought to be a segregated society, one where people hailed from different neighborhoods, lived uh, worked in uh, different jobs, where whites had the first access to any good jobs, and one where the schools were separate, and where absolutely above all else, you had to prevent the great bugaboo, miscegenation, race mixing, from um, uh, damaging the purity so that of, wasn't, of the race. It wasn't called white supremacy then, but the basis of it was that that whites should have the advantages because they deserved it, kind of, right? Is In that, effect, yes, yeah. Yeah, and that it was dangerous yeah. um, not to, to uh, preserve that. So that today, when we think about white supremacy, some would argue that one aspect of it has changed, that, that there, uh, in the past, we've obviously had Ku Klux Klan-like organizations and movements, neo-Nazi efforts, skinheads, but that uh, over the last two decades or so, we've seen the emergence of something that now kind of designated as the alt-right. Yeah. And in many ways, the alt-right kind of formed and grew uh, on the internet as a set of, of dialogues and exchanges between those with really quite extreme views on race issues. And what has become a core element of their ideology, and, and I gather in many circumstances or, or groups, it really is a pretty coherent ideology, is a sense that the white race is threatened with extin extinction, in effect. Mm -hmm. That it's being overwhelmed by invaders from darker countries, <laughs> um, and uh, that race mixing, again, is a profound threat to it and that it's not merely important for uh, whites to, say, dominate American institutions and society, but to really much more aggressively regulate control and, if need be, one might say, dispatch members of other races. And that that ideology includes a view, as a recent very comprehensive report by the Anti-Defamation League's uh, Center on Extremism outlines, um, a sort of view of of Jews as the puppet masters mm -hmm. of peoples of color uh, who are the kind of vanguard of undermining uh, the white race. Now, we can all regard these as kind of fringe groups, but we know the number of such groups have grown. Mm -hmm. And tragically, as a result of the 2016 presidential election, they feel far more validated mm -hmm. and far more ready to move, in effect, into the public sphere, mm -hmm. which is one of the things we saw uh, in Charlottesville. Um, uh, two and a half years ago, uh, where they decided to hold their Unite the Right rally and some 600 tiki torch wielding um, white supremacists um, headed out into the streets, mm -hmm. thinking that, that now uh, their time had come, uh, that they were going to be able to go public with what had been a largely internal online dialogue uh, mm -hmm. in many ways, that they were, could safely step forward, step out. And that was just probably the most visible and tragic symbol of the kind of resurgence uh, and kind of increase of white supremacist activism. Was, were there, was there a measuring of this going on before 2016? Did we know this was percolating? Uh, certainly. Um, uh, groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center, groups like the ADL, have long been monitoring these kind of extremist groups and activities mm -hmm. and hate crimes. The federal government has legislation, at least since 1990, requiring um, uh, the monitoring of hate crimes. Now, that federal legislation, which has been modified a number of times over the years, however, 
some would argue, um, doesn't have the clearest standards, doesn't even consistently make all federal agencies and groups report uh, when they know of, of such incidents, and does very little in the way of training law enforcement officials how to identify, record, report on uh, hate crime. So it's, um, the hate crime figures would say maybe they're, they're eight, 9,000 hate crimes a year, roughly say last year, uh, the, the, the year before. But if we were to look at the victim, uh, national victimization survey data, uh, you might have an estimate that put it more toward 250,000 such incidents that the order of magnitude and possible undercount is really very high uh, if given some of these other data reports from, from surveys. And it shows that we haven't made the investment in trying to monitor and identify and make sure law enforcement is really on top of um, these kind of far-right uh, extremist and, and often white supremacist groups. Well, even though we call this the resurgence, so many of these followers are young people who are not, were not around when, you know, when this was a, a fear and a worry. Um, what attracts them to, uh, to these white supremacy movements? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a um, complicated moment that, that we inhabit. And I try to think about the complex of factors that are operative in the present moment. One of the things that ha is happening, as we all know, is that our society is becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. There's a huge transformation underway where white Americans will no longer be the singularly dominant group uh, in the population. And that in many quarters, that has been regarded as a threatening transformation. That increase in diversity has also occurred at a time of sharply rising economic inequality and a rise in economic inequality in a way that's transformed all of our lives. As, as I look around this room, and I'm glad to see a great mixture of young people and older people, but you folks like me with gray hair know um, that there was an era in that post-World War II period when a growing economy raised all boats. And in fact, the distance between the little boats and the big boats got a little narrower. <laughs> um, Post-1973, however, even as we've enjoyed some periods of sustained economic growth, the distance between the boats has grown greater and greater. And we're now at a point of economic inequality that exceeds that at the time of the, the Great Depression and uh, is of a level that you know, Americans used to go, sneer at uh, South American, Latin American countries that had this level of inequality because it was intrinsically threatening to the stability of a democratic system to have such gargantuan disparities between the wealth and material resources available to the few as opposed to the many. I mean, we live in a society now where three men control more wealth than the bottom 50% of the American population, <laughs> right? Uh, Bezos, Gates, and Buffett own more money than millions and millions and millions of people. Uh, and that just can't be a healthy circumstance for a democratic social order. So we have this context in which many people are feeling like, I'm not doing better, and I certainly can't pass on a better future to my children. The population demography is changing. And then, sadly, we've been a country that has also long had a problem with racial and ethnic diversity. We are a society that engaged in treating a whole human group of people as property that invested heavily in slavery, and both in terms of how our laws were written, what we expected people to live like, 
and uh, how their lives were to play out, and that that kind of culture of racism is not easily undone, even by major transformative um, legislation. And the last point I'll make there is, unfortunately, it's become a key routine part of our national politics. Mm -hmm. uh, I know many of my political science colleagues will say that both parties, Democrats and Republicans, play on race and uh, racial divisions. Democrats telling African-Americans and Latino voters, you have to vote for us because we're the only ones who are really going to look after your interests. And now Republicans always trying to, in effect, frighten enough white people that we're the only ones who are going to prevent them from taking your goodies. Mm -hmm. Um, and that has become such a routine part of our politics, in particular, I will say, on the side of the right, a little less consistently and certainly less perniciously uh, mm -hmm. on the left, um, that uh, the door was ready and open for a candidate to double down on what had been a kind of subtle dog whistle race politics of the pre-Trump era. Trump decided uh, subtlety is not my game. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm going to walk up and in my press conference announcing my candidacy for president of the United States, I am going to say that Mexicans are murderers, rapists, and drug dealers. That I'm going to say we should be worried about Muslims coming into this country. Uh, I'm going to say that China, Japan, Mexico are taking our jobs, right? Mm -hmm. So he did an enormous amount of demonizing and othering of racially and ethnically distinct people. That big red race button, which was kind of always there in American politics, Donald Trump walked them to it and just punched it, punched it, punched it, punched it, punched it, and punched it again. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, is part of the context in which we have to worry much more mm -hmm. about the sudden rekindling of these kind of really far-right, alt-right, white supremacist movements. We are more diverse. We are deeply unequal and haven't created the social policies to deal with that. We have a politics that's often poisoned by racial division and discourse. And now we have a successful candidate who's decided to mobilize all of that in a potentially dangerous fashion. Mm -hmm. I've read research that shows that um, and correct me if I get something wrong, that if you're questioning whites about racial attitudes, you get different responses if, if part of that mentions the demographic shift. If you refer yes. to the demographic shift, yes. that whites are much more likely to kind of become tribal and, and yes. ally with whites. Is that just a mental thing that happens without us knowing it? I mean, is that some kind of a, or is that, reacting to, as you said, all these messages that we get, that these other groups are after you? No, I, I think it's a combination of things. And um, if you, we, we know experimentally from work people have done that um, if you point out to folks that this population change is occurring, it increases kind of the anxiety among many white Americans. Mm -hmm. It increases the concern that they may be at risk of losing ground to minorities, and it does indeed increase the likelihood they're favorable toward um, uh, Republican or more right-wing um, candidates. And uh, so it's kind of a combination of things, right? Mm -hmm. There are some underlying tendencies, and there are communicative acts or, or messages from politicians, rhetoric that Beats tries that. to activate that, yeah. to pull people yeah. in a particular direction. And I don't want to create the view that this is 
automatic and monolithic because you know one of the virtues of the moment and what a lot of my work has shown is that we've seen a huge change in racial attitudes in America and the kind of old Jim Crow segregationist racism that was accepted um, uh, practice and common discourse is still largely discredited and we've seen no mass return to legitimacy uh, I think for those kind of points of view uh, but if you're a careful student of history and this is what concerns me most about the present um, you know that things don't always stay the same <laughs> and and in fact really contrary to what is often an American expectation things don't always change for the better uh, sometimes, sadly, we take huge steps backwards. And uh, I, there are many people who are rightfully fearful that we're in one of those moments of potentially taking some huge steps backwards. When we talk about white supremacy, I think I know what comes to mind for me are the organized groups, the marches, the alt-right. But we had a case here I just heard on the news the other day where a homeowner in a condominium complex in Calabasas, which is a, you know, mostly known for the Kardashians, I think, <laughs> or somebody, but, um, but was hanging out signs that were, you know, horribly racist signs about blacks and about yeah. Jews and about Latinos, and very proudly hanging them from the window. And um, the Homeowners Association, you know, was trying to find a way to get him to stop, and finally the police threatened to cite him, and he took them down. But the idea that, I mean, you were just saying that these sentiments are, like, not you know, that's not the norm to be able to express them. But we're clearly getting, there are more people who are, there may not be marching with tiki torches, but they're very publicly declaring yes. their animus. Yes. What do you, how, what accounts for that? And, and where is that taking us? In a word? Yes. Trump? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a, a little more seriously, and to explain it, I mean, there was a major national survey done uh, by the Pew Center on race relations in the US. They interviewed nearly 7,000 Americans, uh, white, black, Latino, Asian, uh, the, the whole gamut. And that survey showed that most Americans are now convinced that race relations are generally bad. Hmm. Uh, solid majority, six out of 10 Americans said race relations are bad. And of that six out of 10, a solid majority, 53% expected things to get worse hmm. rather than getting better. One of the things that survey disclosed was that, uh, and, and that they also asked about, uh, do you think that um, people are more willing to express racist views or race, racially insensitive remarks than they used to? Solid majorities of all groups, white, black, Latino, Asian, said yes. All right? So that I think everyone is experiencing this now. Yeah. And that that is, and also when asked, um, uh, has Trump improved or worsened race relations? Solid majority of, of all groups think he has worsened race relations. Uh, I will say, good, uh, one reassuring feature of it is that 84% of white Democrats said that too. Mm -hmm. Only 20% of white Republicans said so, but still one in five is a pretty high recognition mm -hmm. uh, rate uh, among Republicans. So that uh, the office of the presidency confers extraordinary legitimacy on its occupant and that person's point of views. And you can see that extraordinary legitimacy in how the mainstream press covers what I think many of us would often regard as totally inane Twitter comments. Yeah. 
but they're going to be reported on the major nightly news with regularity. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the President of the United States has said this. Mm -hmm. And that confers great legitimacy. It may well be an irony, but I hadn't really made the juxtaposition myself, but you know, Trump declared his candidacy for the presidency on um, June 16th, 2015. Some of you may remember what happened June 17th, which was the tragedy at Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where, where nine black worshipers were killed by the white supremacist, hateful white supremacist, Dylan Roof. Now, maybe history wanted us to, to keep those juxtapositions in mind, but uh, it's one of those terrible things, like the shootings we've seen in El Paso, the anti-Semitic acts um, in Pittsburgh, uh, the Charlottesville protests, that remind us that the presidency has a powerful role for setting a kind of normative climate. And if we have an occupant of the White House who um, is demonizing uh, entire ethnic communities, uh, who has uh, pardoned a public official, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was basically convicted of violating a court order to stop racial profiling, uh, who sees virtuous people on both sides of the protests um, in Charlottesville, uh, then uh, it's not a surprise that elements on the far, far right, previously deeply, completely illegitimate in mainstream public space, now feel they have the right mm -hmm. to come forward. Uh, we've got some anecdotal evidence now, too, in studies done by um, the Southern Poverty Law Center on our schools, suggesting that schools are places where we're seeing many, many more um, racial insults, racially mm -hmm. insulting symbols, uh, a racial taunting uh, taking place. And in many ways, it's because children, young folks, are like an early indicator. <laughs> they don't have the same restrictions on a lot of their behavior that adults do. And when they perceive those signals going out that it's okay to say these things, mm -hmm. it's okay to start doing these things, uh, we see more of it kind of there first. So I think there are lots of signs that, that um, are troubling ones and that, that that is part of what makes it possible uh, for folks to take steps, engage in gestures that they wouldn't have felt safe or comfortable doing 10 years ago. Should we be doing more then? I mean, when you talk about schools and where these things are happening, and, and I, I think some of that is that we don't understand the history of various groups. We yeah. demonize them yeah. without understanding what's bringing them here, what, right. you know, what we went through. And should we be doing more? Because if we're raising a, a young generation of kids who are not going to like each other because of what group they're from, then that's trouble. Um, we obviously ha have to do more. The question is, kind of where and how do we uh, intervene. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we certainly have to do, and I think have to expect and demand of our leaders, is that they project the right values, the values that, that matter, the values of tolerance, the values of um, mutual respect, um, and kind of mutual obligation to one another that, um, I think in many circumstances we could have expected 
uh, in the past, but seem to be in yeah. relatively short supply these days. But that message is not enough, right? There are lots of other concrete steps that I think we all need to be um, uh, concerned with, and perhaps we're too passive about it. But another thing that has to happen, and I'm part of why I agreed to be a part of this panel, and I'm delighted to see so many uh, folks here this evening, is that we have to have communities and spaces where people come together and help work through these issues, mm -hmm. to engage not merely in the talk, but the pr process of connecting and then kind of mutual action, uh, coordinated action to bring about change. Because uh, otherwise, uh, you know, power abhors a vacuum. And mm -hmm. there are certainly people out on the other side of this, in a way, who are working for different outcomes mm -hmm. than, I think, those of us who would rather call uh, America to its higher angels yeah. uh, would like to see happen. I find, and I, aside from the statistical and quantitative yeah. things, the qualitative things, it seems like a, a dizzying time almost um, for me. And um, we see, I always seeing on YouTube and things, there's so many incidents of, you know, black people being treated badly, you know, you're called the police because you're in the pool or, yeah. you know, or, or you, the baristas at Starbucks or whatever. So I find myself beginning to think reflexively, to wonder about the, you know, the people that are my neighbors, or mm -hmm. I mean, and, and, and when you think of symbols, the flags, the Confederate flag is a yeah. huge symbol, but even yeah. the American flag. I mean, my neighbors that newly hang American flags, are they patriotic? Or do they think I should go back to Africa? I mean, uh -huh. what's the, you know, I, it's, it's um, and then on the other hand, when you look on television, and, and sometimes I feel for the older white people because the commercials are all mixed race couples and there are black people everywhere and we're all just so happy and we're getting along and there are women kissing and there's everything that's going on and yeah. and it's you know to me that feels great but um, I mean what messages are we getting and, and how is this affecting us I find I'm prejudging uh, there was an older white couple in front of me at the grocery store and I had a, a couple items, they had a lot, and then I saw them whispering, and I was sure they were saying bad things about me, and then, <laughs> and then they said, oh, honey, would you like to go ahead of us in the line? And I felt horrible, and I realized <laughs> I'm making judgments because I'm programmed by the things I'm seeing now, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, uh, by all the white people that don't like us. So, you know, what do we, how, how do we personally navigate these things and not be damaged by wow, it. Wow, that that's a hard one because we're all caught up in this maelstrom of, yeah. of information and contradictions and possibilities. And kind of the racial divide here has always been this um, complicated, complicated thing. And I think um, we have to kind of bear in mind, or I think carry ourselves in a way with, with an openness to the positive and the good. Not necessarily that we naively have the expectation that that's always how it's gonna play out or what every situation will involve, um, but that that's what we hope for and that's what we would like to think others bring to us. But on the other hand, I think we also have to be mindful of history mm -hmm. and mindful of when uh, things begin to take dangerous turns. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking earlier and I mentioned a book written by a pair of my colleagues uh, at, at Harvard called How Democracies Die by political scientist um, 
Dan Ziblatt and Stephen uh, Levitsky. And these are scholars who ordinarily study uh, political systems outside the US. They do almost no thinking about <laughs> the US. But after the 2016 election, they felt like they really had to, to focus on what was happening in America. And essentially, they, their, their opening thesis, and it's based on their many, many years of work in other countries, is that democracies rarely fail because of coups or takeovers. Mm -hmm. Democracies fail because of a rot from within. And in particular, a rot where those who are the guardians of institutional power allow extremists to come into legitimate institutionalized power. That's a very dangerous thing. When people who shouldn't have gotten the keys to the mm -hmm. castle get the keys to the castle. Uh, because then several other things start to happen, <laughs> like questioning any challenge of their decision making, mm -hmm. like challenging the idea of an open critical press, like demonizing, vilifying any opposition, um, like endorsing violence against critics or people who are ideological opponents, right? If you can't recognize um, patriotic opponents that, you know, you're, you're in a dangerous moment for a political system uh, when, you, when you allow that to happen. So I don't, I don't want to end up for any of us personally caught, you know, saying we got to be skeptical and wary and on guard against everyone else. That's absolutely the wrong posture. Yeah. But we also have to be reading what's happening in the larger context around us and not kind of buy into the naive view that well, this is America. Things are always going to improve and get better. Terrible things can happen. I mean, mm -hmm. if you were to go back to 1870, uh, there was a great experiment going on at that time with integrating African Americans into the body politic mm -hmm. called Reconstruction. And you had blacks in the United States Congress. You had blacks in state legislatures. You had uh, uh, blacks taking on all kinds of positions in life. By 1880, that was over. Uh, and we began constructing what became known as the Jim Crow era, uh, where we institutionalized in the law this extreme set of regulations with regard to access to voting rights, access to education, open discrimination uh, in housing and jobs, uh, and conferring upon African Americans a legally sanctioned uh, secondary status in life that was not slavery anymore, but clearly not full citizenship either. And uh, so we gotta be aware of our own history and the currents of history and when the time has arisen for us to, to be very vigilant in defending, preserving, and advancing the values that, that matter to us. Do you think that the, the rising visibility of white supremacy may have in some ways um, long-term a motivating force for moderates or for, for you know, well-meaning whites who, are, who are, were unaware that this existed in our, you know, I've had friends say, you know, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed, yeah. white friends. I'm ashamed yeah. that this is happening. Yeah. So could that activate kind of a resistance that would? It, it could, it, it, it absolutely could. And I am, am hopeful that it is having some of that effect. I think in a, a number of recent elections, I think we've seen that. Yeah. We've seen that from a lot of young people. We've seen that in terms of a lot of elites now who appreciate uh, the, the kind of risky moment 
uh, potentially kind of transitional moment uh, we are in. So uh, I think there's some grounds for kind of guarded optimism that, that people who are, are woke to the possibility that um, um, things are turning in a bad direction and kind of sitting on the sideline is not good enough. Uh, and that, that people have to, to get engaged and be committed to making a difference. Will a demographic shift make a difference that, that when in the not too distant future, you know, minorities are the majority? Will that, um, I mean, not uh, one, one would hope so. I still hope that, that um, uh, Lindsey Graham's prognostication was correct, that we're just not making enough old, angry white men uh, <laughs> to, to, to keep holding on to that power that's a base. But you see, they've doubled down on that for the short run, yeah. uh, would, would seem to be the case. And, um, uh, but that, that transformation, I think, is coming. But you see people working triple time to slow that transformation. Uh, from our really increasingly draconian border policies, yeah. increasingly arbitrary uh, de you know, detainments and um, deportations and uh, the like, so that, and voting hindrances and restrictions that we know have no real justification in the argument about voter fraud, which has long been of a trivial uh, level, nuisance level at best uh, in American politics. Yet we see all kinds of restrictions on when and where you can vote and the type of ID you have to have uh, in order to vote being put in place uh, in, in many states. And uh, it's just not credible to say that that reflects a realistic concern about voter fraud. That's about making sure some people have less of a voice uh, in political decision making. Well, we're going to take questions in a minute, but I guess the last thing and I know you're, you're not the problem solver, you're kind of the problem identifier, but um, how can we as different groups of people, black, Latino, Asian, Muslim, Jew, Christian, together battle what's happening and, and increase our concern for one another and not just look at our own group and our own group's problems? Yeah. Are there... Um, principles that we can rally around or ways that you think we can together um, combat this and show them who's boss, basically? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think so, and I, I think it's possible, but it's not always easy, because politics, in many ways, at least the, the overt discourse around it, often seems so uh, driven by a simplistic articulation of interest. Is it, is it good for me and people like me or is it not? And mm -hmm. uh, I think in all groups there will be uh, an expectation that there should be rigorous internal dialogues about what our needs and our challenges and our claims are. But at the same time, there has to be a commitment to working in coalition on those common points of connection that often uh, are uh, really shared in substantial measure mm -hmm. uh, if we spend the time to really listen to one another and connect. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's possible. Um, and I'm, I, there are some ways which, for example, I'm encouraged by some of the debate we see going on in the primary process now that, that issues and uh, communities that weren't often the subject of much overt discussion now really are. Uh, and uh, 
you know, I was stunned four years ago when we had debates where people actually used terms like mass incarceration. I never <laughs> thought we'd see that in a national presidential debate, but it's obvious enough a problem, and especially for constituents of at least one of the major parties, so that uh, politicians have to now speak to it and speak to it in a way that's constructive rather than just uh, instilling fear and leading to more uh, punitive policies. So that if, if um, people bring their natural concerns, well, I, actually, I'll go back to one other thing that I don't think he got the credit for. I've always felt that Barack Obama in some ways had the, the recipe for how to engage these issues, though he ends up being criticized for every, by everybody though because they don't recognize the full formula. Um, on the one hand, he would say, look, we've got these racial tensions and problems, and many white Americans have this grievance and complaint mm -hmm. about what African Americans or any other minority group are claiming or saying. But, and so he'd validate that grievance in white America, and many black folks would pillory him for this. Yeah. At the same, right after he'd done that, he would say, of course, there's a real history and concern here on the part of African Americans or Latinos or Asian Americans. There's a real issue there. And then he would do his best to tether that to his third point, which was some variant of e pluribus unum. <laughs> Let's find a way to get together and do the united thing to solve a common difficulty as Americans. And I believe that's a real formula that can work if people stick to that message. But if we have a Democratic Party or left progressive efforts that say, oh, you minorities, you're only about identity politics. We can't do that. This is purely about economic stuff, and you guys need to subordinate everything else to economic stuff. That can't work anymore. <laughs> that, that can't be the story, I don't think. We have to work with the complex web of communities and groups and issues that are out there, but those things can be intermingled and brought together, I think, in a constructive fashion, because I think what happened in part in our politics is that the, the kind of subtle anti-minority race politics that's happened on the right with uh, the Willie Hortons and the welfare queens and the Cadillac driving person with food stamps, you know, all of those subtle buttons that got pushed for so long met no response on the other side in our national political discourse. They just let it happen thinking that, well, you guys got to stick with us anyway. We don't really have to give a direct response. And now you do. I think we're at a moment where people have to engage the diverse communities that are out there, do it in a language that recognizes their claims and concerns, but they are not special interests uh, who are in danger of threatening America. They are part of the American whole, and the question is how to deal with the uh, circumstances that we are all sharing in and a part of. And is, uh, is politics the only kind of tool or, oh, or no. arena? <laughs> or, I mean, Not at all. I mean, this is the kind of thing where churches, synagogues, mosques, all manner of religious groups need to be involved, where local community groups and organizations have an absolutely critical role mm -hmm. uh, to play. Our traditional uh, civil rights uh, organizations of all stripes uh, uh, need to be mobilized. Uh, and uh, part of this, um, because that's what it's going to take, I think, to produce the kind of changes that um, are, are needed if we are to 
get around this hopeful, you know, this, this unfortunate moment or, or time that we seem to be in. All right, well, thank you. Thank you. Um. <laughs> My name is Jorge Rodriguez. Uh, I am optimistic that people are going to rise up and join together and make change. Uh, it took us 15 years from 71 to 86 to pass the amnesty law when people never thought an amnesty law would be passed in the history of this country. And it took us a long, long time to defeat the right. Now, I want to ask you, even though there's optimistic things going on, people are coalescing together. Do you feel or think that we are experiencing somewhat a social, economic, political apartheid, educational apartheid in this country at this time? You know, I don't know if I would use the term uh, sort of educational apartheid. I am, like many folks, worried about... I said social, economic, and political, and educational. Oh, okay. I got it. I got it. Um, that uh, in too many places we've, we've witnessed, say, a resegregation of our schools, a disinvestment in public uh, uh, resources like our schools, and uh, that, that has been part and parcel of a kind of politics of making sure our resources don't go to them uh, in lots of different ways. And I think one of the things I take heart in about the current moment is I think we're getting past a lot of that sense that, that government can, can do no good, we shouldn't invest in government. There are some functions that government has to perform. If we don't want potholes and undrivable streets, by and large, government's going to have to do that. If we want a population that's healthy and not riddled with disease and unbearable health costs because everything gets handled through emergency rooms, we have to do something more serious than we now do on the, the medical care provision um, front. And that sense that, that we need to guard our resources, uh, I think, is coming under uh, greater challenge than it had been in a long time. And so I have some real uh, optimism that uh, we're at a point where we can defeat that. And again, I don't, I don't think, let, let, let me add one other thing about this, this Pew survey results, which at one level uh, is troubling, but it does kind of specify part of what has to happen. Uh, in the work they did there, they have discovered that, as it, not unsurprisingly perhaps, that one of the things that really polarizes the political parties, uh, pe which ones people identify with, really is about issues of race and ethnicity. More so than uh, education, more so than age, more so than even income, how you think about racial and ethnic inequality and groups is now near the heart of what defines political partisan identities. That wasn't always the case, and in many ways it's a troubling circumstance. But it says that part of what we need to work for now is building a progressive, majoritarian coalition, which clearly exists out there if mobilized properly. I mean, Barack Obama got elected twice. Let's, let's not forget that. It's possible to do that. Um, and um, it seems to me that the other thing that has to happen is some more open dialogue about the Republican Party giving up on this strategy of race baiting and 
ethno-racial division because that has been their bread and butter, especially at the national level, for too long. And that has to end. I mean, we can have a real debate about what the size of government ought to be. We can have a real debate about what tax rates ought to look like. Uh, we can have a real debate over what the constraints of individual freedom versus kind of community obligation and duty are. But let's decouple that from race baiting and manipulating of racial symbols and identities and divisions. And that the people who've been responsible for that um, really need to be kind of pushed out of the political mainstream on both sides. It's 2020, and to kind of piggyback on what you just said, um, as a person who studied history and sociology, uh, can you give us some examples of some successful outliers? Mm. There's a current book, The, the Wilmington Lie, which touches upon, uh, touches upon some of the points you just mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. You had a 56% uh, black population in 1898, mm -hmm. in which you had working class whites and blacks in a coalition with, I believe it was the Populist Party at the time. Mm -hmm. And so again, this is after Reconstruction. Yeah. Wilmington at the time was, the, I think, the largest uh, North, Amer uh, no North Carolinian city. And there was a coup that basically took over the city by white supremacists. And they used the term white supremacists and white supremacy in the propaganda leading up to the next election and coup to take over and, and basically run out successful blacks that had businesses, that were involved in the police force, that were politicians. So can you give us some examples of some utopian or <laughs> idyllic communities that did start at some point in our history? Because many of us, if, if we explore the history with our families, often have heard stories about some unique communities, some of them in Ohio, other places, yeah. where essentially blacks and whites started to build these communities in which they were integrated communities prior to 2020 now, where we're, we're backsliding, where you see these examples of where if we had just taken that through, we'd actually have lived up to the ideal of what America is supposed to be. Yeah. That is really a, a terrific question and a remarkable challenge. Um, and I, I, I say that not to imply that, that that utopian vision is impossible, but uh, to say that it's, it's, it's hard to sustain in a lot of circumstances. And I guess the challenge as I see it is to be kind of a, a consistent trooper on behalf of achieving that utopian dream. I think about what it would be like to have, um, you know, been a person like Martin Luther King when he started, uh, uh, let's say, the, the, the Montgomery bus boycott at a time when, certainly in the South, people took for granted these segregated spaces. And if you had gone out in the parlance of today's sophisticated politics and done a survey, you would know that, you know, 60%, 65 70% of the population disapproved of getting rid of segregation. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you have to stand up and take the risk uh, on behalf of the right thing. And hopefully, you get others to follow with you. 
And as others follow with you, you become the tide that takes the day, um, uh, in effect. But you're right to remind us, and this will be my last comment here, that there have been lots of opportunities um, for racial harmony and comedy in the past that have been derailed by uh, manipulative efforts, uh, political efforts. Uh, and I think what would help is if we are mindful that those efforts happened. I think the problem now is that Americans in general uh, tell ourselves too many short and heavily biased stories about our own past, uh, rather than getting the full rich detail that makes it clear all the possibilities that were there in different eras and the moments that were lost, uh, like the ones uh, you described. And so if we had the teaching of more honest history, more courageous people, and a consistent push, maybe we'll get to that utopian achievement. Hi, my name is Alan Shea, and I'd like to, first of all, thank you for the insightful information you provided tonight. Uh, mine is more on a personal, realistic perspective. I'm a political science major, uh, city official uh, from Pasadena, and the thing that we do is we constantly work on how to integrate a, a progressive model of racial engagement, I call it. Mm -hmm. One of the things that concerns me more than anything, and I haven't heard any true direction, is looking at from uh, 1964 to 1984, that's when uh, African Americans moved to the middle class at the highest population ever. And in average, we were about 20% in each city. Right now, we're down about 6%, in a, and we're projecting after we get our census, we might be at about three and a half in the next two years. At that rate, you're looking at extinction. And if we are not receptive as humans, to understand what happens when you extinct a species or rebel with it, that certain group of, of individuals. We have major issues at hand. So you put that on top along with the homelessness and all of the other uh, economic challenges that we see amongst African Americans and other people of color, how are we gonna move forward? That's hard. Um, I think um, a, a fair and serious answer to your question would say there are a lot of interconnected issues uh, in the experiences of members of any group, certainly the African-American community uh, in particular, and it's part of that kind of nexus of challenges that makes moving forward hard. So if you make progress on get or better schooling is one thing, but if you haven't broken down discrimination in jobs, if you haven't broken down discrimination in housing, if the police store, uh, force is giving you hyper-monitoring uh, and sanctioning, if your voting rights are curtailed, well, moving the schools is really constrained, right, on how much difference you can make. So that, that one has to think about articulating the case for a kind of holistic inclusion that um, is multidimensional in its character something that really does proceed from a premise of, on the one hand, the full humanity of members of each and every one of these groups, including African Americans, and an appreciation, on the other hand, for the distinct histories and experiences that may require different ways of engaging in a human, respectful, uh, appropriate way with the circumstances of, of each group. 
And we haven't had that kind of value approach or political discourse uh, in the past. Because I don't, I don't want to use terms like extinction or sinking out, you know, out of place and so on. If we approach this with the right affirmation of the common humanity and worth of each and every one of us, and yet the potentially unique historical trajectories and experiences we've had, I think we would have a better foundation for reaching some kind of um, amicable commonplace in space. Hi, how are you? My name is Suhei Espinoza, and I have a question regarding, well, one on a personal note. Um, as we've seen an, a rise um, on the alt-right, I've also noticed a rise with, uh, for instance, men's rights activists and incel groups, other types yeah. of groups. So I'm curious yeah. to know if you've observed in your research um, an inter uh, a correlation and or causation uh, between the intersection of white supremacy and misogyny. There's no question that those two things often go hand in hand, and uh, as particularly on the alt-right, uh, a, a, a lot of their uh, rhetoric and uh, mobilization is as much about imposing kind of a white male heterosexual patriarchy as it is about um, pursuing their racialist uh, uh, nationalist uh, identity so that it includes kind of all of those elements even if the kind of front piece is the kind of uh, anti-Semitic, openly racist uh, element of it. So you're right that, that that is a piece of it, and that is part of what uh, I think we all need to be mindful that we're struggling against. Hi, my name is Jude. Um, I have a choose-your-own-adventure for you. Mm -hmm. So my first question, option one is, um, could you maybe, maybe articulate more explicitly how addressing capitalism might help to address white supremacy? Or option two would be, what could the black radical tradition have to say for how we might address our situation today? We have to think carefully about, I think, the current moment, which is, I think, sometimes aptly called the, the kind of neoliberal economy and solution that, that we're in at the present moment, where I, I think we've just deferred entirely, deferred entirely too much to a market-driven dynamic and the needs of capital, especially big capital, uh, as opposed to the needs of citizens and communities. And there has to be a serious recalibration of that relationship. And that that literally is part of what the debate that's going on in the Democratic Party is about right now, kind of how far to move in that recalibration. Uh, but uh, I, as we watched the extremes of inequality just continue uh, unabated uh, in this country and watch more and more people kind of get left behind and extruded from civil society, as sociologist Louis Quacant, uh puts it. Uh, uh, that's just a really hard circumstance and I think not one um, that is healthy. And so I'm not saying that, that one has to undo capitalism, but as always, we have to be, through social policy and the state, mindful of correcting the excesses uh, that can go along with an unchecked, unregulated uh, economic market dynamic, especially given the level of power and resources we have concentrated in such a small number of hands. Um, now, there might be a black radical tradition that uh, was even more critical than that. Um, and I, I, I see myself as close to that in the sense that um, uh, 
you know, where I would draw the line on redistributing is really far removed from where it is right now. Uh, but it's not necessarily ending what are many virtues of uh, free market dynamics. So that is uh, the last question we have time for. But uh, before we close, on behalf of Sokolo Public Square, I want to thank all of you for joining us tonight. Um, please take your questions to our reception, which we will have right now in the back of the space right back there. And before we end, please give another um, tremendous round of applause for our people's guests.